0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good to see you all this Thursday morning. This is Quartbox and these are your headlines. Asian equities sink into the red on renewed concerns over the health of the U.S. recovery after the Fed paints a downbeat picture and hints at more central bank action in September. Kamala Harris uh, accepts the nomination for vice president, telling the Democratic National Convention that the incompetence of Trump's presidency has left people feeling afraid.
1: Let's fight with conviction. Let's fight with hope. Let's fight with confidence in ourselves and a commitment to each other. To the America we know is possible.
0: Apple becomes the first American company to reach a $2 trillion market cap and now makes up almost 7% of the S&P's total value after its massive rally this year. And Wirecard is finally out and Delivery Hero is in. The DAX reshuffles its members to remove the disgraced payments firm in favor of the takeaway company that has seen a surge in sales during the lockdown. Gonna level with you. I don't know what you wanted last night. I don't know what you wanted from the Fed Minutes as well. And I don't even think you really know what you wanted as well, because I'm reading so many uh, conflicting reports. I've gone everywhere to look at this to work out what you wanted and why you were disappointed with what you got from the Fed Minutes. Some people are saying, well, uh, we're worried about the economy. They're too worried about the elevated risks. And as such, uh, we hoped that they'd be more robust about the economy. Others are saying, actually, no, what we wanted to see uh, was them even more dovish. Uh, Well, they were dovish, i.e saying that there are elevated risks, weren't they? Oh, you wanted action. Well, what action did you want? Did you want them to say something about yield curve control? Yield curve control, have you looked at the T-Bond yields? We'll come to all this in a few moments time. But the T-Bond yields at the moment, what's your two-year yield? 0.14 of so what's your three-year yield? 0.167 of a percent, what's your five-year yield? 0. 0.28, 0. 0.28. Anyone who's been around longer than 20 minutes, have a look at those numbers as well. What's your 30-year yield? 1.4%. Ah, oh, but we're worried about uh, rates picking up and worries about loans. Well, what's your 30-year average rate mortgage at the moment? What's your fixed rate mortgage average? It's between 29 and 3.1%. Yeah. I'm um, just put that in a bit of historical context. I had a quick look at the charts. 2011, right? You're just coming on the back of the uh, last uh, big financial crisis. They were 4.65%. 4.65%. And what were they in um, 2018? Yeah, they were 5%. So you're getting them massively low, 40% lower than they were in late 2018, your 30-year mortgage. And you want yield curve control? Oh, the other thing you wanted was guidance on interest rates. I forgot about that. Yeah, guidance on interest rates, what they've already said probably aren't going to move to the end of next year. 0.1 of a percent. Anyway. So I'll read the read. Yeah. Fed officials expect the pandemic to weigh heavily on the near term growth and employment in, US, uh, in the U.S. Minutes from the central bank's uh, July meeting show policymakers were concerned the virus also poses considerable risks. You knew that, didn't you? You knew that they posed considerable risks in the medium term outlook for the economy. Which one of you didn't know that? Oh, what, well, the journalists? The journalists are just poring over something, trying to work out why the market sold off. Trust me, it's not our fault. Anyway, uh, increased fiscal aid is needed to help support the recovery. Well, we know that. We know that we're looking at Capitol Hill, that the politicians are trying to do something. Several members agreed that further clarity over forward guidance would be appropriate at some point, but did not provide a specific timetable. Anyway, okay, so you all got disappointed last night, and this is what happened in Asia when they picked up from the US markets, which I'll get to in a few moments' time. So the Shanghai Composite is down 1%. The Hang Seng is down 2%. The Nikkei is down 1.1%. We got a a percent decline over on the Asian markets. US markets, which hit earlier highs. uh, I've gone through this in the headlines as well. The US markets from yesterday closed down. Not exactly dramatic moves to the downside, bearing in mind, and this is the other point, isn't it? Bearing in mind all the the weight of disappointment about something, whether they didn't uh, say enough good things about the economy or didn't do enough action to the downside about the economy before September, of course, which is the absolutely key month for policymaking as well. The market didn't actually fall that much despite that. Three-tenths of 1% lower. Now, I will come to the futures in a little while, but the S&P 500 uh, fell 0.4% and the Nasdaq, I mean, You've got to remember where we've come from, ladies and gentlemen. We have come a hell of a long way. What is it I said to you yesterday? We hit our 38th intraday record high of the year yesterday, or day before in the NASDAQ, and we closed down 6.10%. Big deal. Okay, I've given you some treasury yields, but I'm going to give them to you again. That's just to make the point as well. Here we go. Two-year paper, 0.1371. 30-year paper, 0.13974, which means you've got a mortgage rate of somewhere between 2.9 and 3.1%. Would you like a look at the US futures? I guess the downbeat tone is going to continue. I'll show you the US futures and I'm just going to do a big arc so that I can see them quite close up and then I'll move away again. So 144 points uh, off the Dow at the start of trading, it is what is called. And again, I would suggest you are a bit hair trigger at the moment, given where we've come from, given your concentration of holdings. I mustn't forget where you're holding your stocks at the moment. Apart from Apple, you do have one or two holdings, I'm sure. Right, record highs uh, for U.S. stocks are about right, despite the threat uh, posed by the outbreak. That's according to the St. Louis Fed President James Bullard, who added that many American companies have successfully adapted to the crisis. Mr. Bullard also said he expects business activity to rise in the second half of the year. Richard Kelly is head of global strategy at TD Securities, and thank God he's here because, Richard, I haven't got a clue why the market's so disappointed, but you have, I'm sure. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I think, I mean, it, it has to leave you a little bit where I think it, it, it's really a sign of a lot of the positioning that's been sitting here. And obviously the way that we have been sort of force-fed um stimulus up to this point to try and keep the recovery going. You know, you had a fed that came out last night that basically said it's probably a little bit worse on the economic situation since last we met and we're not necessarily prepared to say we're doing anything new yet. So I mean it just leaves you in that lurch to have to wait until the meeting to see exactly what gets delivered now, but they they didn't give us any hints and you see a market that just, you know, was kind of desperate for more detail.
0: They're not politicians. They don't read the Daily Mail. They don't look at social media. What they do is gauge the longer term parameters of the U.S. economy using a whole host of backward looking data and forward looking data as well. Why are we expecting them to act like politicians and have knee jerk reactions when we haven't actually seen how the third and fourth quarter have transpired yet? Do you think the market is just getting uh, too demanding? Well, I mean, the market wants clarity. I mean, that that is always the case. And
2: we know we're living in an age of of extreme uncertainty in terms of what the economic situation is going to be, because it's all being driven by a virus. So, you know, I think the problem here is that the Fed can't be a lot more explicit because they're, you know, rather than being data dependent, they're COVID dependent. And, you know, that's sort of what drives the, the situation. But I think the other side, I think what you want to take away from these minutes is they are still having very broad discussions. And I think at the end of the day, we are still going to see them deliver in September. And I think we also have to be cognizant that it's August and, you know, half people are on vacation. So, I mean, liquidity is not necessarily there either. So if you don't get anything new, you take a little bit more risk off the table. And I think once we get to September if you read through the minutes here, yes, yield curve control was something that it definitely seems most participants don't think were there. And I think, you know, the point there is until you get to a situation where there's actually an economic recovery and the market's trying to push 10-year yields to 80 basis points, 1%, 150, and and that's inappropriate for the stage of the recovery, well, then you need to step in with yield curve control and pull those rates back down to actually let the economy grow. But with a lot of the other areas you look at, I think, you know, there's a lot more discussion of average inflation targeting and inflation overshoot, about outcome-based guidance. Um, I think those sorts of areas you can expect action from in September. Um, And we'll see whether it's just is, is strong enough and forceful enough, given where market pricing is, To actually get us kind of moving forward um, at that point.
0: Richard, are you serious? Have we moved on to the BOJ? I thought we... Sorry, I thought we were talking about the Fed here, yield curve control. All of a sudden, everybody's talking about Fed yield curve control. Has our viewers, have your investors, seen the yield curve at the moment? Why do we need to control it? Well, I think this is the point. I, I think looking at
2: yield curve control right this moment is not something that's necessary, but it's about whether you put that control in place before the market pushes it away so that it's there and you don't have to think about it, or whether you sit back and, and you know, use other measures. But I think, I think you're probably right at the end of the day that whether they implement yield curve control now or not, the market is not likely to take us out of a range that would be consistent with that anyway. So you know, it, it, it's almost like a safety break at this point. You could put it on. um, But if the car isn't moving,
0: it doesn't really matter. Hang on a second. Are we suggesting now that the yield curve has to be manipulated going forward because we cannot trust the discounting mechanism of the market to correctly judge the correct level of the underlying bond and, and therefore the yield on the back of that as well? Are we saying the market is redundant now and this needs to be manipulated by central banks?
2: Well, I think it's it's a fact of the matter that given we have no more policy rate at the front end, it's zero and there's nothing else you can do, you move that policy target further and further out the curve. So the same way we used to manage the overnight rate, we now have to manage something else. And in most circumstances... You can still do that without any sort of firm bits. You know, you look at QE, which is just buying across the curve. You know, if we get to a situation where we think that those market rates should be lower to generate the economic recovery, the same way we would have cut the Fed funds rate, you know, 100 basis points over the course of a few months to generate growth. Well, now we may need to cut the tenure rate by 50 basis points to generate sufficient growth. So I think that's that's the the the, the nature of the world that we live in, given how much the, you know, the policy
0: options have been limited now. Um, given where we are historically, normally you and I at this stage of a presidential election year, will be talking about the Fed just holding off and not wanting to influence uh, election matters with central bank policy. That's what we'd have talked about every four years normally as well. But it's different this time on that front, isn't it?
2: uh i mean i think the fed always does what they need to do um but we know as you get closer in if if you know the status quo is okay you 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 know don't really see the fed tend to you know Shift one way or the other, but I think in this situation, you know, the, the status quo is the Fed is easing and the Fed is dovish, and so you know, particularly in September, you know, I don't think there's any issue whatsoever doing what they need to do. Um, but if they can get their bigger decisions out of the way in September, then that probably leaves them as we get into October and November um, a, a bit more on the sidelines and running policy um, until we see exactly how the data pans out and where COVID goes at this point. But I think September is still far enough from the election that, that there's really no one concerned about political issues around the Fed here.
0: Um, if we get a stimulus package, and I think um, Nancy Pelosi said, I oh, will meet you halfway. Well, where are they at the moment? They're three, three and a half trillion. The uh, Republicans are about a trillion as well. Let's say we settle on 1.75 trillion, something like that. What does that do to asset classes? Anything?
2: I think it it does
0: have a significant hit now just, you know, for two reasons. The one is
2: we've definitely seen the expectations fall that we would get something and that, you know, we would get it in an even longer time period. So that gives you a little bit of a boost that, you know, people have discounted it a bit more. And I think the other side, even if you look at that, you know, if you get something between one and a half, two trillion, which seems to be the landing zone right now, given where you've seen Republicans give in a bit and the Democrats are now willing to get under two in terms of what their headline number is. You know, this was a market that was actually coming in thinking it was going to be more like one to one and a half trillion. Didn't think the Democrats were going to get in there. So it's actually bigger than what people were talking about a month ago. So at the end of the day, yes, I think that that overall fiscal policy really has a lot more impact and is much more important right now than than the Fed, given what we've already talked about of of some of the um Uh, the the more limited abilities of the Fed at this point. Um, So delivering that fiscal stimulus is more important. And so, you know, you would expect it to feed back into equities, which means you're feeding into that reflation trade and you're getting break-evens widened. You know, you're hopefully at some point getting EMFX. That's the side that hasn't necessarily gotten along with there. So the reflation trade, I think, is really anchored to what can fiscal stimulus deliver, whereas I think the Fed is going to drive the real rates trade. So that's your gold trade and, and your tips trade.
0: Excellent. Lovely speaking to you, Richard. I uh, hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed for that. Richard Kelly, head of global strategy at TD Securities. Uh, Apple has become the first U.S. company to hit a market cap of $2 trillion. It's actually the first company globally, if you take out uh, the brief period that uh, Saudi Ramco spelled it, uh, spent at $2 trillion. The tech giant has doubled its valuation in just over two years, having already surpassed uh, the aforementioned Aramco as the world's most valuable company in July. Uh, Juliana joins us with more. Uh, Why is it worth double what it was when it was a trillion dollars, Juliana? Good morning to you.
3: Good morning, Steve. Well, it has been an extraordinary run for Apple. Apple was the first uh, company to reach the $1 trillion market cap milestone on August 2nd, 2018. And now it's been an extraordinary run since then. It shares up about 60% year-to-date and up more than 120% over the last year. Now, what justifies this doubling of its valuation in just over two years, as you just asked? Well, the operational performance has been strong in recent quarters. In July, the company posted a historically strong third quarter uh, with a strong quarter with nearly $60 billion in revenue. But here's the kicker, nearly double-digit growth in its product and services unit. And this really underscores the success of Tim Cook's strategy to try to shift the business and shift the perception of the business from being a hardware company to being more of a services and software company. Valuation now stands around 33 times price to earnings. This $2 trillion mark is, of course, largely symbolic But it does underscore the efforts that Tim Cook has made to shift the perception of this company. Now, interestingly, investors not stopping here. There's already chatter about how this company reaches the $3 trillion mark. Yesterday on CNBC's halftime report, we had an analyst from Short Hills Capital, the founder of that uh, asset manager, saying that uh, he thinks that Apple's 5G launch, which is the forthcoming development to watch, was going to be the biggest product launch in uh, the world, in in the world for Apple. So he thinks that this is going to be the next catalyst for the stock. Another thing to look out for in terms of catalysts for Apple, they announced it back in July, this four-for-one stock split. And of course, this hasn't changed anything fundamentally, but we have seen shares appreciate since then. This is going to kick in on August 31st and will make the shares more affordable for retail investors, smaller investors. So that could potentially be a further catalyst as well. One thing to look out for, though, something we've talked about many times, regulation, as a a major headwind for this stock. They were questioned on Capitol Hill just a couple of weeks ago over their App Store policies in particular. And then we were discussing just earlier this week the story around Epic, uh, the Fortnite game owner, and the battle that they're now forging against Apple for their App Store policies. So it's not necessarily going to be smooth sailing from here, but it has been an extraordinary run thus far. Steve.
0: Juliana, uh, we've looked at political heat on uh, other players in the, the, the top tech companies. Is there much political heat uh, on Apple at the moment as well? Of course, at various times they cross swords with uh, uh, Mr. Trump about reshoring about where their production facilities are as well. Uh, has that gone away?
3: It absolutely has not. I think this is the key hurdle when you speak to investors about Apple. It's the uh, regulatory hurdles. And, of course, you can't you can't extract that from the political pressure that are facing not only Apple, but the tech giants more broadly. And Apple was quickly joined by the other tech giants, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, in reaching the $1 trillion market cap level. So there's a huge amount of scrutiny on these companies from a political and regulatory perspective. And that is definitely not going to go away anytime soon. But you speak to investors, and from a political point of view, when you think about U.S. versus China here, uh, the tech giants are no doubt the pride and joy of U.S. industry at the moment. So will the U.S. politically want to do anything to dent the size, the scale, the dominance of these tech giants? That's a big question, and you have to pair that with the regulatory concerns that come with growing as powerful and as big as these companies have.
0: Very nice. Thank you very much indeed for that, Julian. Nice if you could uh, join us nice and early today. We'll see you a little bit later on as well. So coming up on the show, Alibaba earnings set to be overshadowed by rising US-China tensions. Uh, Sherry has a preview for us coming up next. And Oh, the podcast, though. Oh, it's a winner. Uh, more on the Fed's downbeat view of the economy. Check out the CNBC podcast available from all major providers and the CNBC website. Welcome back. It seems only a a couple of years ago that Jeff and I were welcoming uh, Roberto Azevedo as the incoming World Trade Organization Director General. Now he's the outgoing one. Uh, He's told CNBC that the WTO is currently looking to find solutions, full stop, (laughs) Uh, no, for e-commerce regulation. But the U.S.-China trade tensions make it difficult to avoid the fragmentation in the Internet space.
1: You cannot ignore that a lot of these uh, tensions, they are political in nature. They're not, uh, you know, Economic. It, it's not about trade. It's not about uh, dollars and cents. It's about geopolitics.
0: Uh, Mr. Azevedo, though, was upbeat on the ability of the WTO to broker negotiations that would create global rules for the digital age.
1: It's do- absolutely doable. I have no doubts about that, that we can come up with uh, rules and disciplines that would harmonize uh, the way that uh, economies interface in the digital space
0: got to be honest, I think there's bigger issues than worrying about the digital e-commerce space as well. I mean, just got to look at that big ocean, the Pacific, and look on either side of it, and you can see bigger issues, which the WTO has not been able to bridge, has it? Uh, Mr. Trump may ex- attempt, though, to block possible payments to China that would result from any deal to sell TikTok in the United States. That is according to the White House economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, who spoke to CNBC from Washington. I think he probably would like to deny China Uh, some of the uh, proceeds of the TikTok sale. Um, It's not something that's been done in the past, but that doesn't mean it can't be done now. I'll leave it to Secretary Mnuchin, who will be running the books uh, on that deal. So we'll see. I don't know. Meanwhile, TikTok's general manager in the United States and Canada, who is uh, Vanessa Pappas, has told NBC's Today Show that the company is confident of its long-term future in the United States, denying accusations that it poses a security threat.
3: No, we're we're not a national security threat. And we've said that time and again. We have very strict data access and controls. We have our security team in the US, which is world-class but it matters probably less what I have to say and more what the experts have to say. So even last week we saw the CIA come out with their intelligence report that said we're not a national security threat. Uh, the Australian government did their own research and also said that, that we're not a national security threat and then they're not pursuing a ban.
0: Elsewhere, Alibaba, due to report results before the U.S. Bell, analysts have predicted that the e-commerce giant generated $21 billion in revenue, boosted by an increase in online shopping amid the pandemic. The Chinese tech giant's outlook, though, could be weighed down by rising trade tensions. And Sherry, that is the point, isn't it? Normally, we're just pouring through the Alibaba numbers to see how Alibaba has made hay, potentially, during the pandemic. But the fact of the matter is we can't dissociate it from the politics at the moment.
1: That's right. And uh, for names like Alibaba especially, that's the case because it is much of a household name as is uh, WeChat of uh, Tencent or TikTok of uh, ByteDance as well. And remember, President Trump did not exactly rule out the possibility of going after other uh, Chinese uh, companies in terms of uh, pressuring the way he did with WeChat as well as TikTok. So that was certainly, um, you know, that is certainly the overhang going into this earnings a call later on today and of course there was that pressure when it comes to the stock market or these stocks US listings as well as here in Hong Kong as well and of course there are some concerns especially over chinese retail consumption power just last week we see we saw china's july retail sales actually down more than a percent when Economists were expecting a growth, and of course, that has been declining for the last seven straight months. So how resilient are Chinese consumers is really one big overhang question as well. Although, when it comes to the market expectations, we are looking at the revenue jumping close to 30% or so on here for the June quarter. All this has to do with Alibaba, believed to be one of the winners in terms of rising Online shopping, especially as the Chinese consumers are riding out of the depth of the coronavirus in that particular country as well. And remember, there has been nice ramp up when it comes to cloud business that a lot of analysts particularly liked as well. So those are some of the stuff that we're going to be watching out for. And bear in mind, like I said, this is the June quarter. And let's not forget what happened on June 18th. Alibaba had a major Mid-year sales promotion event and that is expected to give a nice boost when it comes to its sales numbers in fact the company did talk about the volume of the orders that they got through their own payment system on their online marketplace was actually up 43% on here so pretty nice in terms of you know comparing what happened after covid and pre covid and back in may already they were talking about how they're seeing this nice uh volume growth in terms of you know consumer spending similar to pre-pandemic levels as well and of course, there is the stock market valuation that we need to think about as well, because both here in Hong Kong as well as the U.S. ADRs, they're both nicely up more than 20% so far in 2020.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to CNBC.com.
2: Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.